right, this is not going to come as a huge shock to most of you. Maybe it will. Uh, But just in case, I'm going to say it. We live in a selfish culture. We are selfish people. Let me prove it to you in case you're questioning me and don't agree. Let me just prove it to you. Our economy thrives on greed and selfishness. We quit spending what happens to the economy. We quit buying and consuming what happens. It dries up. Our economy needs us to be selfish and greedy. Our our whole principles for living, everything, our our ideas for for getting ahead and for for finding ourselves in security depend on us to spend. If you want to make money, you got to spend money. You see, the idea is that you can't You can't untie the two. They're inextricably woven together. We are selfish people, and so we spend to make. I mean, let me me even push that a little further. Our marketing schemes. Marketing schemes are almost always driven from this perspective. What's in it for me? Not what's in it for the person producing the commercials or producing the marketing, but what's in it for the, the consumer, the person they're presenting it to. What's in it for me? So how can you make me money? How can you save me money? How can you solve my problems? How are you going to make me happy? That's, that's how we present everything. That's how we sell people on everything. This idea even invades our religious culture. People pick churches based on what's in it for me. It's easy to go someplace, and, I, and I'm not saying, please don't hear me saying anything against big churches. Obviously, we're not a big church. But people often go into these big churches with these, the, with these grand uh, marketing schemes that demonstrate to them, hey, we're going we're, we're to be the answer to your problems. I'm going to tell you, if you come in and literally plug into a church, you are not finding only the answer to your problems, but you are finding the problems of other people that are there. It's the truth. Own it. You carry baggage. I do too. And that's the reality of this world that we live in. The answer is not the the marketing scheme. It's not the programs that we offer. It's the Jesus Christ that died on the cross that gave us this. That's the satisfaction. That's where we'll find happiness. That's where the answers lie. But even in our religious culture, we do it. In fundraising, even for things that are good causes, they often have to be helped along with prizes or products. Boy Scouts sell popcorn. Girl Scouts sell cookies. Man, I can't believe I had to think about Thin Mints, man. I can't believe that they have to sell those every year. I think in one year, Thin Mints, that should do them for forever. They're amazing. They've made their money off of me. Just saying. I mean, think, think, think about even in this building campaign, you know, in, in September of last year, we began a building campaign to raise funds so that a church could find a solid footing in a community. I think that sounds like a good cause. A gospel-preaching, Bible-believing, people-loving church to find a, a footing in a community began to raise money. And the vast majority of the people gave that that gave or that helped this process, the vast majority of the people that were involved with giving gave as a response to one of three things. Chick-fil-A dinner, barbecue we had out here on the grass, and a garage sale. Here's the catch, though. 
we raised less than 10% of all the money given through the means that involved the most people. We, we, we raised about $3,300 in all of those schemes and methods. The vast majority of tithes and, or, or donations given so that we could have this were through churches that helped and people that are in this church that believed in what we're doing. And in fact, you could count on two hands, really, and get over 80% of the tithes given by counting 10, 10 groups or 10 people. That's shocking, actually. But I, I, I think it demonstrates, I think it demonstrates that this issue is inextricably, I mean, it is ingrained. It is part of who we are. This is huge. We can't even, we, we, we can't even pray well sometimes without thinking, what's in it for me? It's so big a part of who we are. How many of us pray more when we recognize God is actually answering our prayers the way we want to? How many of us feel excited about prayer when we see him doing big things in response to our prayer? Sure we do. Absolutely we do. How many of you have heard people sell evangelism as if it's the next product that's going to be the answer to the problem? It's going to make you happy. You're going to be all right. Hey, one day you're going to have the wealth of God. Have you heard it? It's huge. It's all ingrained in who we are. All ingrained in who we are as fallen, broken people. What's in it for me? But the reality is, and I think if you, if, if you, if you take anything from the first two weeks of this series from, from Jesus' seven sayings on the cross, if you take anything from those first two weeks of this series, it should be that there shouldn't be anything in it for us. I mean, th those were two tough weeks, two heavy weeks, and I get it. I mean, being identified with a thief on the cross... Being put in the same place as that thief on the cross who was given salvation as a result of repentance and recognizing his sin and, and Christ's righteousness. And that's not any fun. But that's a work of his grace. That's a work of God's unmerited goodness towards people. Being identified with and, and, and put in the same place and, and just as responsible for Jesus' death as those people that stood on the ground that day. That's heavy to carry. But as he hangs there, he prays to his father for their forgiveness and by extension, ours. We can experience his grace because God forgave. But the reality is, is that there shouldn't be anything in it for me. There shouldn't be anything in it for us. But the beauty of this gospel message, the good news of the gospel is this. That in spite of us deserving nothing, in Christ we have been given so much. That there is benefit for you and for me. That there is something in it for us. And the reality is, I don't think it's wrong for us to long for it, to, to desire it, to want it. I don't think it's wrong for us to desire the joy and the peace and the promises of God. As long as they don't become more important to us than God. And I think... I think the reality is, is that today in this third phrase, as Jesus speaks from the cross again, I think we're going to see those benefits begin to be highlighted and begin to unfold. We see his forgiveness, prayed for, 
we see his salvation applied as a response to repentance. And in this third message, in this third phrase, we then begin to see the benefit of what salvation brings us as he gives the word of affection. The passage is in John 19. John gives us the third saying from the cross. And at this point, Jesus is already, he's, he's been accused wrongly, he's been beaten, he's been mocked, he's been stripped, he's had a cross strapped to his back, he's carried it through the streets of Jerusalem, he gets to the place of, of the skull, Golgotha or Calvary, he gets there, they lay him down, nail him to the cross, hang him up, begin to mock him even more, make fun of him even further, and he prays for their forgiveness. And then when a thief on his side repents and turns and changes his mind, he offers him, gives him, doesn't offer him, gives him salvation. That's been a full day. In fact, most of us would like to call it quits. I'm tired. I'm wore out. I'm ready to go home. I'm done. But Jesus has more to do. He's got more to say. And that's where we pick it up in verse 23. It says this, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided garments among them, and for my clothing, clothing they cast lots. So the soldier did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to, to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own Home. First thing I want you to notice before we even really get into the depth and meat of the sermon, I want you to notice the contrast between these two dealings with Christ. The very first one is these soldiers, these, these guards that were sent to the cross with Jesus. Tradition tells us that there was four soldiers at each cross, and so there would have been a total of 12 there. Each four soldiers, one of their, one of their benefits, one of the things that they got to take home with them was the leftovers of the person that was being crucified. So whatever they had with, him, with them when they went to the cross, the soldiers got to divide. It was normal. This was an everyday thing. It didn't just happen to Jesus. It was, it was probably happening to the thieves on each side of him. So here Jesus is hanging naked on the cross, people laughing and sneering and mocking in this, in this state of humiliation, and these guards at his feet around him just gambling over his stuff. And, and they come to this place where the, the most valuable thing Jesus has left is this tunic. The seamless tunic, a tunic that was woven from top to bottom. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I, being who I am, I had to Google it and try and figure out how this gets done. I don't know. Somebody can maybe fill us in someday. The reality is, every tunic I found on Google, Google doesn't understand even how to make a seamless tunic. So I don't think it happens anymore. You cannot find the way to make a seamless tunic, even on Google. Try it. And if I'm proven wrong, let me know. We'll announce it next Sunday. It's not going to happen, though. <laughs> Amy's thinking, I'm going to find it. <laughs> I see you. 
But the reality is, is this, is that this is the most valuable thing Jesus has left. And rather than split it into fours, it becomes useless at that point. They think, oh, well, let's keep it as a whole, and I want it for myself, and so let's gamble for it. And you can be sure every one of those men wanted it over the other three. Every one of them. We don't play the lottery to lose, right? I mean, have you ever bought a lottery ticket thinking your money just went to help the A-plus program? Man, I hope I helped them students that can't pay for college. No, come on. You play the lottery to win. Nobody ever bought a ticket thinking they wanted to lose. I'm going to spend 30 bucks and get my name in the hat a whole bunch of times. I hope I don't win. Come on. No, these people, they wanted to win. They wanted, to, they wanted this. That's our selfishness and, selfishness and greed. They wanted it. And you know, the, the thing about this is, is that that's really how we act sometimes, even with Jesus. We've already talked about it a little bit in the introduction. I already talked about it and sold, sold you on it, proved to you that I'm right about this. I mean, we're, we're selfish people. We, we would be just like those guards gambling for that tomb. You know how I know? Because we buy into marketing schemes and commercial ads all the time, hoping it's going to make our life better, it's going to do something to satisfy us. You don't believe me? How many of you have AT&T? You know, they're, the, they're the, one of the top four carriers, and I think about half the people in the room just raised their hand. You know why we buy into them? Because they sell us really well. In fact, there's a whole series of commercials. I brought one for you today so you can watch it and laugh at yourself a little bit. I mean, laugh at the commercial a little bit. But the reality is, is that this is how we, this is how we get duped. This is, this is how we're made to believe that something's going to fix our problems. Play it. So which would you rather have, a big treehouse or a small treehouse? If it's big enough, you can have a disco. <laughs> oh, yeah. Why do you not want a smaller treehouse? Because it wouldn't be able to fit a flat screen TV, and then the TV would be about this big, and you would have to hold the wire, and the position you would hold the wire, you wouldn't be able to see the TV. That's a pain in the buns. It's not complicated. Bigger is better. And AT&T has the nation's largest 4G network. Hey, bigger is better. Do you think we all need four and 5,000 square foot homes? A lot of people live in them, don't need them. Hey, I know a guy whose house is about to be washed off of concrete, but he has more peace and contentment in his life than many of the people I personally know in this church. It's crazy. Bigger is better. But you know the reality of this is, is that as we consume the things that of today, and I'm not saying go get rid of your cell phones. Don't hear me saying that. I mean, it's a reality of the world we live in. I get that. But as we consume in this way and continue to just fill our lives with this stuff, the, the promise of it will always fail us. It will always leave us empty. How many people's lives have really been made better by AT&T? Come on. Nobody? Some people who work for them. <laughs> I got a, a 401k because of them. <laughs> All right. I'll give you that one. There's always another perspective. Hey, the reality is, though, that it, it, is this, is that these things, while, while they do momentarily maybe give us some sort of satisfaction and some level of pleasure and some level and sense of peace in our lives, 
They're going to be just like that tunic that Christ was wearing. One day they're going to fade. They're going to rip and tear, and they're going to lose their value. Because even a 401k and even a job doesn't provide for us eternally. There's so much more to Christ. But these, these guards, they didn't recognize it. They're right there. They know all about who he is and what he's supposed to be doing. They have all the knowledge. They have all the testimony hanging on a cross above them as they cast dice or, or cast lots or whatever it is that they're doing trying to win this tunic. And they totally miss him and hope for his tunic. And then the scene changes. And there's potentially three or four ladies. It depends on how you read it. It's almost impossible from the Greek to determine. It's impossible from the English to determine as well. There's three or four ladies and one of his disciples, John, standing near the cross, near enough that they could hear him speak in his weakened state. They're not hoping to grab hold of the last worldly goods of their Savior. They're standing there mourning. Because a man they'd come to believe in is suffering and dying. And they don't, they, don't even, they don't even say a word to him. In fact, they're just standing there looking on. And then, and then it happens. Jesus, with this great affection, Pulls himself up. He's, he doesn't speak. He, he can't speak without issuing himself or bringing himself pain. Because as you hang on the cross, your, your abdomen cannot contract. He must pull himself and push himself up from the nails. His affection is so real, so certain, that, he, that, he, that he, he induces further suffering, that he can look at his mother and say, Woman, behold your Son. And look at his disciple and say, Behold your mother. This is the affection of Christ, uh, 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 that Christ has for those that he loves and that follow him and that believe in him. You see, and the, and the reality is in this moment, this, this first statement, is, it's issued directly at his mother. Woman, behold your son. It, but, but don't miss this. Don't miss it. Because Jesus' love and affection for his mother is the same love and affection he has for every one of his people. That includes you and me. Certainly he was taking care of her. He was concerned about her need in the moment. Certainly he was thinking about what was going to happen when he died. Life for a woman with no husband in that culture was difficult. It's likely that Joseph was dead. It's, it's almost certain that she was a widow at this point. As the firstborn son, he was responsible for her care. She was to live with him. He was to provide for her. He was to ensure that she was taken care of. And so certainly, he is thinking of her. He's concerned not just for her, her needs in eternity. He's concerned for her, her needs now. He wants to know she's taken care of. And the truth is, is that's the same for us. His love, his affection for us is so real that he doesn't just wait for us to be saved to provide us the benefit of salvation. But as we talked about last week, it's a 
present possession. See, Jesus isn't just concerned for your future. He's concerned for your here and now. Jesus wants to know. He he wants to provide. He wants to know you're secure. He wants to know you're safe. He wants to know that you have a, a, a present possession of His salvation. He wants to know that you're provided for. He wants to know that you're experiencing peace. He wants to know that you're full of joy. He wants to know that you're living in the benefits of His love. He wants that for you. He cares about your physical needs. He cares about your spiritual needs. He's not just saving you for a moment. This off in the future, some intangible idea of the moment we're saved. You see, while we can identify with the thief on the cross because we're all thieves and murderers at some level, the reality is, is this, is that we're not all about to die and go into paradise. Most of us will carry on here for some time. He's not just concerned for that moment of death. He's concerned for you right now. And so he's given us promises. And the promises of Scripture belong to God's people. Just as, just as, excuse me, just as real as it was for him to look down on his mother and John and say, woman, behold your son and behold your mother, just as real as it was for them in that moment, these words of promise are as real to you today. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no, not, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That's the promise of God to you, his people. No condemnation, none. Man, I fail all the time. No condemnation. I sin, I struggle, I fall to temptation. No condemnation. That's the promise he made and he keeps for you. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't mean that we'll never deal with struggles and problems. But even those are used for our good. Even those are healthy for us. Even those are something that further our strength and our faith and further our joy and further our peace. Even those things are used for God's purpose. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He started the work. He's going to finish the work. If you got saved, you'll get saved. Believe it. That's the promise of God. If you got saved, you'll get saved. You get what I mean? If you got saved in a moment, you'll get saved on the day of your death. You get it? Praise God. Why are you sitting looking at me? You should be clapping your hands. God, thank you. Absolutely, Jesus. Praise you. Yeah, man, I I don't know if you know or not, but I'm pumped up. I'm excited about this. We should be. This promise is as real for you as the moment he hung from the cross and gave Mary to John and John to Mary. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, do not be anxious about anything. Well, wait a minute, I I struggle with this one. I'm anxious sometimes. How in the world could this be a promise? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Tell him about it. Pray. Let him know about it. Lay it down at the throne. And the peace of God. 
You know what the opposite of anxiety is? Anxiousness? What's the opposite of that? Peace. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. James 4, 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Do you believe that? This God who is perfect and holy and righteous and big. He's powerful enough to create the whole universe. He doesn't need me in any way, yet he wants me to be near him. And his promise is that as I draw near, he draws near. Man, right now I'm just thinking your spirit should just be bubbling up full of happiness and excitement. Or we might need to check your pulse if it's not. But 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, even when we fail in anxiousness, even when we worry when we don't have to, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. You no longer have to continue walking in the darkness. Step out into the light and proclaim your fallenness. And you know what happens? God says you're white as snow. White as snow. Nothing in you, dark and broken, sinful and dirty. You are forgiven. What an amazing promise. And these promises of God are ours, not because we measured up, not because we did something great, but because Jesus hung on the cross with great affection and love for his people. And just as he, as he considered his mother's needs in that moment, he considers your needs in this moment. Some of you here today, man, some of you, some of you may need to be hearing this more than I could have ever imagined, more than I could have ever planned for. The reality is life is difficult. And you need to know and be reminded it's not what you do, but what he's done. You need to know and be reminded that the promises of God are yours. And they're secure in Christ. And just as his affections extended beyond his mother, so, is his, so his promises extend beyond just you or just me. You see, the second thing I think we learn in, the, in, in this word of affection is that Jesus' love for his people becomes evident as he unites us under his authority. Jesus' love for his people becomes evident as he unites us under his authority. I, I think that it begins to get us closer to this intent that Jesus had, this idea, this, this perspective, this point. I think it gets us closer to this intent that Jesus had as he made this statement to his mom and as he made it to John. Certainly, he cared for her needs in that moment. Certainly, he wanted her taken care of. But the reality is that she had other sons. And when he died, they would have just picked up the slack and gone forward. She had other family who would have taken care of her. But see, there's something more going on than just that immediate need. There's something more going on. God, Jesus, through this, as he speaks to Mary and John from the cross... Jesus establishes relationships beyond the natural lineage that are rather established by his blood. This morning, Matt had you stop singing and, and welcome one another and greet one another as we worship together. There is no one in this room that believes in Jesus Christ that can truly exist as a lone ranger. Now, in our culture, we, we, we really appreciate this. 
We appreciate those people who are independent and running ahead and making sure that, that, that they don't need anybody and taking care of business. We appreciate this. But it's so different than what Christ ever intended. And he looks at his mom and he looks at his disciple. Two people who, who have trusted him, who have believed in him. And, and we know that John's faith was further along than, than some of the others because it says in his gospel as he went into the tomb and saw the grave clothes li lined up and folded, that he believed before he returned to his home. You see, there was a, a higher level of understanding with John than there was of many of his apostles. His mother had grown, she'd watched him grow up. She'd seen the angels pro proclaim him. She'd seen... Um, uh, uh, the miracles that he did. She heard his teaching as a 12-year-old as a in the temple. She recognized that she, he had a father that was not of this earth. She recognized that he was God in flesh. She was further along. They didn't have complete knowledge. They didn't have a full understanding of what was going on or the salvation that was going to occur. But certainly in this moment, you begin to see Jesus working past the natural lineage of relationship and bringing people together. Bought by his blood. And, and listen to this. I mean, this isn't, just, this isn't just something that I'm inferring in the passage. This is the teaching of the New Testament. Jesus isn't just saving a bunch of individuals, but he's saving a people for himself. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, through many, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. I skipped a phrase, a pretty important one. Christ Jesus himself built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. Not just you, not just me. All of us, until we measure the fullness or attain maturity in the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer children tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by the wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Do you see this? Look at this passage. Look at it. Look at it close. Why do we need one another? What is he doing among us with one another? He's giving us leaders. To equip the saints, that's you and me, to equip the saints for ministry. Who does ministry? The saints, that's you. It's not just my job, it's our job. We do ministry. Why do we need this? So that we can be grown up and mature, so that we can gain the fullness of knowledge of Jesus Christ. Why? So that we're not deceived. Let me let, let, me, let, me, let, me let you know a secret. One of the places our culture, our context, our, our, our Christians today are deceived and being deceived is, the, is thinking that they don't need the church. We need the church. Do you see it? How desperately we need the church, how desperately we need one another. You'll never know the fullness of God, the fullness of Christ until you're in the midst of his people. Able to serve and able to be served.
The enemy, the enemy is, in fact, it's told us, Jesus says this in Matthew, when, when he first talks to Peter and says, Peter, who you say I am? And he says, you're the son of God. He says, hey, you didn't learn this from flesh and blood, but my father revealed it to you. And on this, I'm going to build my church, which the gates of Hades will not overthrow. What's not going to be overthrown? The church. Absolutely the church. Now, as members of the church, we are gods and we will not be overthrown. But the reality is this, is that we will fall, fail, suffer, struggle needlessly when we're outside of the church. The promise is to the church. The promise is to God's people. And sometimes the problem we face is, is not because... God failed us. But because we weren't a part of the church. I'm dealing with a, dealing with a person now. An individual who feels abandoned. Who, who, who doesn't have any friends. Who, who believes in Christ. Knows that Jesus loves her. Knows that Jesus died for her. She feels all alone. But it's not because we haven't tried to love her. It's because she's not walking in fellowship with the body. She has huge needs that could be met inside the body. She needs friends that could serve her well if she'd walk with the body. It's important. You need the church. We need the church. Don't let people walk in this, this thought that, oh, I don't have to be Christian, or I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, that's probably true. But if you want to be a Christian that finds victory in life instead of constant struggle and problem, get up and walk with the church. Is there still going to be problems? Yeah, oh yeah, believe me. And you'll get some of the problems that other people have too. But here's the promises of God. Given to His people, the church. We're never called to walk this alone. It was never his intent, and I think we see that picture on the cross. But I think maybe the most important point, maybe the biggest and deepest thing that we see happen here is that Jesus' love for his Father reveals his love for us. And you're like, well, he didn't even mention God here. How did he love his Father? He obeyed his Father. See, obedience and, and love for God, the Father, is synonymous. It's, it's the same thing. You can't say you love God and yet disobey God. Love and worship of God are synonymous. You can't say you love God and then not worship Him. The, 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 they all go together. We're not talking about an emotional love. We're talking about a laying down of ourself as we give ourselves to Him. That's loving God. And Jesus, as He hangs there on the cross, I think, I think, we would give anybody a pass if they were being crucified and they could probably curse once or twice and, and you know, be selfish for a moment. Not obey the commandments. But Jesus didn't do that. As, as he hung there, as he died, he was even keeping the commandments in their fullness. Oh, number four, honor your father and mother. As he proclaimed this to her and was thinking of her need and providing for her and building his people together, 
He's honoring her. And you know what honoring her, following that commandment does? It, it enables him to keep old number one. You will have no other gods before me. You see, the thing is, is that these two are tied together. You can't separate them. And, and the same, what's true in that moment for him is true for us. Truly loving others is inextricably woven together with loving God. You cannot take them apart. You cannot separate them. That's why Jesus said when he was tested and asked the greatest commandment, Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, and he said to him, answering the guy that made the question, what's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything in the Old Testament, all the commands that God had given are tied together in these two ideas. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. You could throw the third one in and say, hey, go make disciples. But if you're not making disciples, you're not loving your neighbor. Wow, man, Seth, golly. Loving others is inextricably woven together with loving God. Loving God is being obedient to God. And I think it's important that we see this because Jesus, first and foremost, is not looking at you and me and thinking, oh, I want to honor them. His primary purpose on the cross is glorifying his Father. He said it over and over through his life. I came that the Father might be glorified. Here it is. What an example for us. I, I just want you to think about it for just a moment. Since Jesus fulfilled these commands, since Jesus fulfilled the law, and he lived perfectly, our righteousness is no longer on us obeying perfectly, but us trusting Christ. This is huge, this is important, this is a starting point for us. We no longer have to live obediently, but we get to live obediently as part of Jesus' family. It doesn't mean that you can get up and run. Should we sin more so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. But we don't have to obey. We get to obey because Jesus has obeyed for us. Galatians 3.13 He became a curse for us. The knowledge of Christ, it doesn't win us the benefits of Christ. The knowledge of Christ doesn't win us these benefits. It doesn't win us for us the fulfillment of the law. It doesn't win us his, his promises. It doesn't win for us his family. The knowledge of Christ does not win us those benefits. They only come through faith. These guards, soldiers, kneeling at the cross, all they're concerned about is all the worldly possessions that Christ is leaving behind. They saw the sign. They nailed the sign to the cross, King of the Jews. They heard the Jews proclaiming, hey, if he's the Christ, bring himself down. They'd heard of his miracles. They knew of his testimony. And all they're concerned about, most concerned about is a tunic. They had all the knowledge and none of the benefits. Unless you count a tunic that fades 
rips and tears and fails. It's on great benefit. But you see, for his mother and that disciple, as they were trusting in him, they received the benefits. And faith in him secures you for you his promises, securing you now and forever. If you got saved, you'll get saved. He brings you into his family so that you'll be ministered to and able to minister to others. One of the best things that happens to people is to take their eyes off their own problems as they're met by others and helping others in their problems. One of the best ways that we can grow up and mature, one of the best ways that we can learn that God's promises are true and that he never leaves us left holding a bag. And finally, faith in him fulfills the law for you. So that as you imperfectly love God, so as, as, as you fail in your loving for God and constantly struggle against the idols of your life, you got them, I got them. He doesn't look at us as a failure anymore, but he looks at us and sees the perfect love of his son that was offered up on the cross, fulfilling every one of his commands, loving God perfectly. That's what he sees on those that are in Christ. That's the promise. No condemnation. Nothing. You're white as snow. You're clean and pure. Your love for him in Christ Jesus is made perfect. And so now, and so now as you stand, stand and sing songs that, that say words that you know you can't totally and fully mean because you struggle in your heart against them, in Christ those offerings of worship are made true. Made real, made acceptable. You see, we're acceptable to stand in God's presence because Christ died on the cross, fulfilling the law, becoming a curse for us so that we might be redeemed from it. Let's pray. God, you're good, you're gracious, you're loving, and we are amazed at what you've done. God, I do pray that in these moments, this is a much, much easier message to preach as I think about the benefits rather than, than the struggle with standing in a place of, of condemnation. But I know that for some of us, we're in the midst and the throes of struggle and problems and difficulties right now, and it's difficult to even recognize these truths. And God, I'm going to pray that you would encourage these people today. I'm going to pray, God, that in your spirit, these words of promise will fill their hearts. That they will know the peace that passes understanding. That they'll sense the joy of your salvation. That they'll recognize themselves as pure and spotless, white as snow. That they'll no longer try to measure up to your acceptance, God, but that they'll stand in the approval that you've put on them in Christ. God, would you do that today? I'm going to pray, God, that you're going to fill us with your spirit, that you're going to influence our lives, that, that this message isn't just heard for, for one of us, but that, God, we're able to proclaim it to others. Starting right here in our family. God, I'm, I'm just going to ask that you would move today. I'm, I'm going to ask, God, if, if there's one here today, that you would move on their heart to call them into faith. That they might trust you. And they may, that they may follow you and receive these blessings, these benefits of your salvation. And it's all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.